Today we will get the big picture of 2 Peter. Of course, same human author the Holy Spirit uses, 1 Peter. Of course, we're talking about the Apostle Peter. If you look in your Bibles, he mentions his name in the very first verse. Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the leader of the 12 disciples of Christ, the spokesman, if you will, and this is the human author the Holy Spirit used. This is someone who walked and talked with Jesus Christ, was taught by Jesus Christ. And he is a a very appropriate person to share this with us today. And since the Apostle Peter was martyred in the late 60s, uh, 2 Peter was probably written somewhere around 67 or 68 A.D., uh, just before uh, he was murdered by Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire. Now, Peter has an occasion for writing this book, and it is important to understand that as we come to this. He's addressing this deadly threat of false teachers, particularly false teachers who would arise from within the church. The apostle warned the believers to be on the alert against their deceiving lies. Never has Peter's warnings been more timely than it is today. These lies from false teachers have not gone away, despite all the warnings we have in Scripture. We have, even worse than Peter had it in his day, we have the advance of mass media, and you you combine that with, uh, overall, there's this a lack of discernment within the church that has allowed doctrinal error to just spread like wildfire. How, you might say? Well, false teachers are spreading their false teachings or heresies through the television, the radio, the internet, through books, through blogs, through magazines, and sadly, even in pulpits of churches. And so the only sure defense against false teaching is for you and I and for believers worldwide to know the truth that is found in the Bible. See, it's not appropriate for us as Christians to go and burn them at the stake or to shoot them or to execute them. That is not Christ's way of dealing with false teachers and heretics. See, Christianity is different from other religions you might be thinking of or what may have happened in the past. That is not a Christ-like way of dealing with them. But we can pray for these false teachers. We can pray for God's word to triumph, for truth to triumph over lies. And at least what we can do is we can, we can shore up our defenses, if you will. And one of the ways Peter is going to help us with that is by teaching us the truth. Key word here in Second Peter is knowledge. He talks about reminding us and And this is what you need to know. And what do we need to know to combat false teaching? Well, Peter's going to share several things with us today. Several things that we need to know. Number one, it's interesting what Peter starts with here is he tells us to know your salvation. Peter says, you need to know your salvation in Jesus Christ. And he's going to share some blessed truths here with us that could... We could have an entire sermon just on this section alone. It's, it's that awesome. Maybe someday we'll do that. But what, is, what do we need to know about salvation? Number one, salvation is sustained by God's power. It's sustained by God's power. It comes from Him 
and, and, and it's kept by him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's the key word, knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Salvation is sustained by God's power. I hope you understand salvation is a personal experience. You're not born with salvation. You're not born a Christian. You have to be born again, Jesus says in John 3. You have to be born again. You have to be adopted into God's family. One comes to know Jesus Christ through personal faith. You have, you have to put your trust and your belief in Jesus. It's not enough simply to know about Christ. Even Satan and the demons know about Christ. But their eternity is the lake of fire. So obviously that's not enough. But we have to know Him personally. We, uh, and so when we put our faith in Him, as it says here, God gives us the righteousness of Christ, and He becomes our Savior. So it's a personal experience. It's interesting, Peter here emphasizes the Word of God in this particular letter. God has given us His Word, and of course, this precious faith and these precious promises of God that we might live godly lives. How else would we know what a godly life is? if God hadn't given us this truth here. And so in the Bible, we have all that we need for life and godliness. That doesn't mean the Bible's exhaustive on all the topics. Of course not. But we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so while the writings of teachers and preachers will help us better understand the Bible, only the Bible can impart life to our souls. So salvation is sustained by God's power. But number two, we see here, Salvation is confirmed by moral virtues. You're not saved by moral virtues, but they confirm who you are. Look what Peter says in verse 5. Verse 5. Notice he starts, by the way, that phrase in verse 5. He says, for this very reason. Now, what what does he mean by that? For this very reason. It's indicating In other words, there's something beyond the new birth. There's something beyond your salvation. There should be growth. That's what Peter's going to tell us. There has to be growth. If there's no growth, then you're dead. Right? You would wonder about somebody, a tree, for example, or a plant. If there's no growth on it, you don't see any leaves, you would, you would surmise that the tree is dead. Right? It's the same with Christians. Same with a person. If there's no growth, they must be dead. And so it's not enough to just be born into God's family. We have to grow spiritually. And so look what Peter says here in verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, 
and are increasing, we could use the word growing here, what's going to happen to you? They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the way, includes you too, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, or in other words, your salvation. Confirm it. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My friend, I ask you, is that a reality in your life? Are you growing? Of course, none of us are perfect yet. I look forward to the day when God will make me perfect and complete and glorified. But it's important to understand that we have to be growing spiritually. We can't be the same we were when we were first saved. There has to be a progress here. And this demands diligence because a lazy Christian doesn't grow. So Peter wants us to know our salvation. But that doesn't stop there. Peter wants us to know a few other things as we go through this book. He also wants you to know the Scriptures. He wants you to know these sacred writings, which we call the Holy Bible. And he tells us a few things about the Scriptures here. Number one, he says that the Scriptures are certified by apostolic witness. They're certified by apostolic witness. Look what Peter says. Now, you need to understand, Peter's going to refer back to what happened with him and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. An amazing experience where Peter saw Jesus transform before his very eyes. The, The veil was like lifted off Jesus and he got to see just some of the glory of Jesus. Peter was amazed by this experience, but look what he says here as he compares that experience with Scripture. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I'm just going to stop there for a moment. At this point, you might be asking, how can we be sure that this message, this Bible, is the true word of God? 
Well, Peter answers that question by referring back to this experience with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And notice, by the way, here in this text, I love what Peter says, because he says, as awesome as that experience was, there's something greater. The, The Scripture, the truth of Scripture is greater than my experience with Jesus. So, Scripture ranks over experience. And then Peter compares the prophetic word to a light shining in a dark place. And the Word of God is the only dependable light we have in this world. There, there is nothing else that we can totally depend upon. And so we have to heed this word and not lean on the ideas of men. And by the way, how long do we do that for? Well, Peter, in this text, is alluding, we keep doing this until Jesus, until we have Jesus. Jesus is that morning star that we look for. So, the scriptures are certified by the apostolic witness, or by the apostles themselves. But scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look what Peter says, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice in verses 20 and 21, they're not teaching us that it's wrong for Christians to read and and interpret the Bible. However, the word was given to us to be read. It was given to us to be obeyed. But notice in verse 20, some Bible translations use the word private. No private interpretation. It just means you don't do it by yourself. No passage of Scripture is to be interpreted by itself either. It's, you don't just rip stuff out of its context. Context is king. You've probably heard that before. Uh, you compare Scripture with Scripture. There is no contradiction within Scripture itself. And you'll always find Scripture to be its best interpreter of itself, its best commentary on itself. So apart from the rest of the Word of God or apart from the Holy Spirit, who gave it, you You can't just go and do whatever you like. Prophecy didn't come by the will of men, it says here, so it cannot be interpreted by our natural minds. It's spiritual work going on here. So the Spirit is the one who gave the Word. The Spirit is the one who has to teach us the Word. And we can thank God that our Bible is sure, because it's inspired, it's controlled by God, if you will. So, Peter tells us to know the Scriptures, but there's a third thing that Peter wants us to know. He says, know your adversaries. In other words, know your enemies. Know who they are. Know know some characteristics about them. And he's going to give us a lot of things, a lot of information about our adversaries or enemies. Peter, first of all, tells us they're deceitful. They're deceitful. Be aware of this. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be 
false teachers among you. You will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Well, these verses are summarizing the methods of the false teachers. You need to be aware of this. Know what they look like. Notice, first of all, it says that they appear among the people as members of the church. These are people who can look like us, who can talk like us. They're sheep in, well, no, sorry, they're not sheep. They're wolves, actually, in sheep's clothing. They, they look like a sheep, but they come in and they destroy. They're very deceitful. They, they have this pretense. They, they have this cover of hypocrisy, pretending to be what they are not. Peter also says they work secretly, under undercover, if you will. And he also says they bring in their false teachings alongside the true doctrines. See, if it was all false, you would immediately spot it, right? But it's, it's a bit like rat poison. You ever looked at rat poison or mice, mice poison? Right? Most of it's good stuff so that the mouse or the rat eats it. There's this, this 1% or even less is the bad stuff that kills them. And often false teaching works that way. They'll, they'll, they'll say some good things. You know, they, they, they'll, they'll talk about God. Sometimes it's what they don't talk about what might actually be dangerous. Uh, one of... Uh, one of the worst false teachers today is very popular. You'll see his books all over the Christian bookstores, Joel Austin. You know, the nice smiley guy with the white teeth, looks very nice, handsome guy. Talks a lot about God, but doesn't talk about Jesus. Right? He talks about how you can have your best life now. You don't want your best life now. Right? So they talk about all kinds of wonderful stuff. You want your best life in the future. I want my best life to come, not now. So they'll, they'll talk about all sorts of nice stuff, meet your felt needs, talk about God, but we just we don't talk about Jesus, we don't talk about sin. Right? You've got to beware. They're very, very deceitful. So they'll bring their false teachings along the true doctrine, and then they replace the truth with lies. And number four, their lives deny what their lips teach. They don't always practice what they preach. In other words, heresy is not just simply false doctrine. Peter's saying that false living is based on false doctrine. In other words, you, out of your, you know, what, what's coming out of your mouth is in your heart, is what Jesus said, right? What's inside the man comes out of him, reveals who he really is. Wolves in sheep's clothing is the way our Lord described these people. So watch out. They'll look and often talk like us, but. They're very deceitful. Peter <clears throat> goes on to say they're also doomed. Yes, they're deceitful, but they are doomed. Look, and he gives several examples of some destruction here. Three examples of, of how they're not going to get away with it, just like these other groups and people didn't get away with it. Look what he says in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We'll stop there. So, hope you can see they're doomed. These false teachers, God says, will be destroyed. And if you don't believe that, Peter gives several examples of what happens. He cites three Old Testament examples to prove this. Notice number one was the angels that sinned against God. And Peter says they're now imprisoned in Tartarus, which is that word you see translated hell. He also gives the example of the world that was destroyed by a a global flood. And of course, Noah and his family were the only people who survived that global flood. And then Peter gives the example of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who were destroyed. And by the way, each of those cases, the persons involved there had a form of religion, but they did not have true faith. And so these false teachers may seem to be successful, and many of them many of them are very rich and wealthy and they might seem to be protected for the moment but one of these days god says i will destroy them so they're doomed and number 3 peter says they're defiant they're defiant very defiant look what look what god says in verse 10 verse 10 and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children... Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. (laughs) Don't you love that illustration? 
God can use donkeys to speak truth. Well, hopefully you get the point. They're defiant. They are absolutely defiant. They're bold and willful, God says in verse 10. So they're despising any kind of authority, verse 10 and 11 says. They don't like authority. Often these kind of people are authorities unto themselves. God also says in verse 12, the false teachers are willfully blind to what the Bible teaches. They call evangelical Christians uneducated. They call biblical theology old-fashioned. You need to get up with the times, so to speak. Verses 13 and 14, we see the false teachers live in luxury. They try to catch unstable people and entice them into their teachings. Verse 15, these teachers are picking the pockets of people. Maybe not literally, but, you know, the, for example, if you watch some of these televangelists on TV, you know, they talk, they talk about just send your money into us and we'll pray for your, whatever your needs might be. A lot of people give money to those situations. In the process, they're poisoning people's lives. And Peter cites Balaam here as an example. This guy would claim to be a prophet of God. But he was, he was out to the highest bidder. He was willing to curse God's people Israel. And God had to use a donkey to stop him, to tell him what the truth was. But he was a prophet who used his gifts to make money and to lead Israel into sin. Bad example, isn't he? So they're defiant, and number four, they're destructive. False teachers are destructive. So we need to know this about our adversary. Look what God says in verse 17. He's describing them here in verse 17 as waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. Here's the proverb, quote, The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Have you ever noticed that proverb, by the way, in real life? I've seen that happen in both examples. Our dogs go and eat disgusting stuff. You, they do. And I have washed a pig before. Wash the pig up, you take it to the fair. I've showed it at the fair, right? You be involved in that kind of process, and then you bring it back home, you put it in its pig pen, and what does it go do? It goes and makes a mess. It gets itself all dirty again. Oh. Terrible, isn't it? It's like these false teachers. They're destructive. 
What do they do, though? They, they promise their followers satisfaction. You know, you can have your best life now. You can, you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and here's the prosperity gospel. You, you know, just follow Jesus, right? And so they're promising followers satisfaction, but what are they? Are they really helping them? No, they're like waterless clouds. They're like wells without water. They're not quenching the spiritual thirst of their followers. It's like a well without water. How useless is that? It's like your water tank. If you're not on city water, it's like your water tank. That's empty. What, what good does that do you? It's no good. You need water. And so these teachers give the appearance of being truthful. They give the appearance of being helpful. They write books. They write blogs. They speak on the Internet and other places. They turn out to be of no help to thirsty people, though. Sadly, there's millions of people like this who are following all these false religions that promise to help them, but don't give them any help. You can think of examples, I'm sure. We don't need to go there, do we? They're destructive. And they might even even tell people, you know, go and blow yourself up. And when you do, you'll have 70 virgins on the other end, right? So go and kill people. Go kill the infidels, and then you'll... You'll have everything you want in the next life. It's very destructive and sad. It's lies. So Peter goes on to tell us we also need to know the future. Know the future. That's what chapter 3 is predominantly about. And the primary thing that Peter wants us to know is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Peter knew Jesus and loved Jesus personally and I'm sure he also was looking forward to that day, but look what he says about Jesus here. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice Peter 
addresses some of the arguments against Christ's second coming here. In verse 3, Peter mentions that the false teachers ridiculed those who were righteous. (laughs) That's bad argumentation, isn't it? Right? You don't actually deal with the truth. You just attack the person who is sharing the truth. If you've ever been in a debate, in a formal debate, you know that's your teachers would teach you don't you don't attack the person. You deal with the arguments. You deal with the truth at hand. But that's what they're doing here. They're they're just going right and they ridicule the righteous people. He also mentions in verse three the false teachers flaunted their own immorality. Just flaunt it. Uh, and then in verse 4, the false teachers foolishly clung to this Unitarian worldview. And you say, well, if you don't know what a Unitarian worldview is, let me explain it to you. Uh, you'll see the word uh, uni, meaning one. It, it asserts there's only uh, that the only natural processes that have ever operated in the past are the same processes that we see at work today. And so they... Uh, the, these people would, uh, these scoffers, these false teachers, if you will, they deny things. And, and God gives several examples of the sort of things they would deny. They deny creation, special creation by God, that God could not possibly have created the universe in six literal days. They they attack the global flood. You know, like there, there couldn't have been a global flood. And so they, they say, what we see happening today was has always been happening really no god says there's some pretty pretty amazing things that have happened in the past there has been a global flood there has been special creation in six days so not everything has happened exactly the same throughout history so this view denies divine intervention if you will through world history i hope you see a problem with that so let's look at some of the arguments for Christ's second coming that Peter uses here, and he uses particularly four arguments to show that Christ is coming again. And one of them is Scripture itself. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Peter uses Scripture itself to back up Christ's second coming. He talks about this second letter. He's referring to Second Peter. Obviously, he's already written First Peter. And he he mentions there in verse 1, In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And he he exhorts us in verse 2, Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Remember what Jesus said through the apostles. Jesus never actually wrote Scripture, did he? But Jesus used the apostles to write Holy Scripture. Peter's saying, look to that. Look to the prophets. Look to the apostles. What did they say in the Bible? That is the truth. In the New Testament, by the way, there's over 300 instances in which Christ's apostles make reference to His second coming. (laughs) It is a fundamental of the faith. It's an essential. So Peter uses Scripture to argue for Christ's second coming, but he also points to history. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, For the deliberately overlook this fact. Hey, he talks about the heavens. He talks about the flood. They're deliberately overlooking that. See, a lot of people know the truth. They just don't like the truth. 
And so Peter's appealing to Old Testament history here to defend Christ's coming. But what do false teachers do? They, they discount particularly two monumental events in history that would disprove their uniformitarian view. They, they discount creation. They discount the global flood. Uh, the first is, uh, as, well, it's, it's creation and the flood. Those are the things that they particularly attack. And by the way, have you ever noticed that there are Christian ministries that, that focus on those two big monumental events that we see in the Old Testament? They, they constantly lift, lift up the truth of creation and the global flood. Because those are the things that they're attacking, seems like, the most. Peter uses history. He says, hey, that really happened. But he also points to eternity. Peter points to eternity in verse 8. And he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, that's kind of a confusing verse to some people, but here's the point. God's perspective on time is not the same as ours. See, God's the one who make, he, he's the one who made time. Read Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. God made time, because he said, in the beginning, God. But God made time, matter, energy, he made all that from the very beginning. So God's perspective on time is is very different from ours. So the amount of earthly time that passes is of no consequence from God's timeless perspective. To him, as he says, well, he just says it right there. Hey, a thousand years is like one day to him. One day is like a thousand years. So I'm going to come. You don't know when, but you need to be ready. He also points to the character of God as an argument for Christ's second coming. In verse 9, he mentions that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you. Now here's the thrust of Peter's argument. He's pointing to God's character. And the reason for Christ's return is not immediate, is because God's patient for sinners. He wants sinners to be saved. He's long-suffering. His seeming slowness, by the way, is is not a result of a a lack of ability in God or somehow God is forgetful or God is apathetic. No, those are not the reasons. God's patient. He's long-suffering. God's working everything precisely according to His perfect plan, according to His perfect schedule, and when that schedule is done, He will come. That's God's character. Peter also says here in verse 10 that when Christ comes, there is assurance of divine judgment. It's not going to be good news for the unsaved because judgment will come. He he mentions that the earth and this universe are going to be burned up. Why does the universe need to be burned up? Why does our earth need to be destroyed, you say? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you find... There is a curse over everything as a result of sin. As a result of the fall, you you are cursed. Creation is cursed. This earth is groaning, the Bible says. So it needs to be destroyed. And so according to the book of Revelation, that's going to happen after the 1,000-year reign of Christ, 
which we call the millennium. And then if you read chapter 21 of Revelation, you find God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. At the moment, what do we see, though? Mockers, ridiculing, false teachers, scoffing. But Christ is going to return. God's judgment is going to be displayed. And in light of all this, what are we to do? What are believers to do? We're to wait with eager expectation. After all, what did Jesus say? He said The last thing he said in Revelation, you know what it says? I am coming soon. That's what Jesus said. Jesus Christ's return is going to be right on schedule. So as we as believers, we, we are expected to respond to this truth that Peter's sharing. And that's how he ends his book. And Peter tells us to live and live in anticipation of Christ's return. Live like you believe this truth, he says. Live like it. You're worthy of this. And so in verse 11, Peter exhorts his readers to live worthy lives that are characterized by two things. Notice, notice what he says. Verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. In other words, since the universe is going to be dissolved, it's going to be destroyed, what effect should that have on you? He says, since it's going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Let me just stop there for a moment, because he's talking about holiness and godliness. The holiness there refers to your external actions, whereas the godliness refers to our internal attitudes. So Peter's saying the external and the internal need to match. They, they both need to be like God. And you say, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to live in light of Christ's second coming? I'm glad you asked, because Peter tells us several things. In verses 12 and 13, he says, if you're living in anticipation of Christ's return, you will have an eternal perspective. You will have an eternal perspective. Look at verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn... But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. My friend, do you see there? You will have an eternal perspective. What are believers to be waiting for according to this? We have to be looking for King Jesus to return. Rather than fearing the end of the world, some people do. They make movies and write books about that, right? The end of the world, Judgment Day, Armageddon, or whatever you might want to call it. Right? People fear that sort of stuff. Rather than fearing the end of the world, though, God says you ought to be longing for the end of the world. In verse 12, it's, it's a very interesting phrase there, the day of God. That's different from the phrase you saw earlier, the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord's judgment so we have a different word here. Day of God refers to the, the eternal state after the judgment is done. That eternal state when everything's going to be made new and everything is perfect. That's what we long for. That's what we look for. 
So what does it look like to anticipate, to be living in anticipation of the Lord's return? Well, you have an internal peace, according to verse 14. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And at peace. This is an internal, sorry, an internal peace. In the context here, peace refers to this true peace of mind that accompanies confident faith in the Lord. It doesn't matter what our circumstances might be. It's, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ no matter what. Peter's talking about a peace that rejects worries, it rejects fears. Why? Because we know King Jesus. What does it look like? What does it mean to live in anticipation of Jesus Christ coming back? Number three, you have practical purity. You have practical purity. In verse 14, Peter mentions, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish. Peter's exhorting his readers here to be spotless. That refers to Christian character. It is what people really are. It's what you are when nobody else sees you. When nobody else knows what you're doing, what you're thinking, that's you. The word blemish refers to your reputation. That's what other people think of you. Peter's saying practical purity is both. You're to be without spot, without blemish. Peter's exhorting his readers here to be both. And for believers, the promise of Christ's return will serve as a very powerful incentive for holy living. If you're living in the light of Christ's return, you're going to be longing for His return. You're going to be thinking He can come back at any moment. And that's going to help you to live a holy life. Your life will be set apart for Him and His purposes and His will. Peter says in verse 15 that you are a faithful witness. If you are living in anticipation of Jesus' return, you will be a faithful witness. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. So when Christians anticipate this eternal state, the day of God, if you will, they also remember the eternal punishment for the lost. So as long as God is patient, there's good news. There's still time for us to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Number five, you have doctrinal discernment. If you live in anticipation of Jesus' return, you have doctrinal discernment. Look at verse 15, the end of verse 15, because he talks about our beloved brother Paul, who also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, we'll stop there. In other words, 
have some doctrinal discernment. Be able to know what is good, what is evil, what's right, what's wrong. And it's interesting that Peter should mention the Apostle Paul's letters as inspired of the Holy Spirit, as Scripture. So in keeping with Peter's warning, believers must not allow themselves to be carried away by lies of the false teachers. Rather, what are you, what are you supposed to do? Be alert. Be watchful. Be discerning, lest you fall from doctrinal stability. Number six, you have spiritual progress. Someone who is living in anticipation of Jesus' return will have spiritual progress, according to verse 18, which says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter encouraged his readers to pursue Christ's likeness. He's encouraging even us today to, to grow spiritually. That should be our goal. Every Christian's goal should be to grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you? If you're not, you've got to ask the question, am I even alive? Am I a Christian? If you're not growing, then you can't be a Christian. This is a goal every believer should have, to have spiritual progress. Again, my friend, none of us are perfect. But do you see progress? Do others see progress in you? You shouldn't be the same person today that you were many years ago. There should be some progress. That's what a person who is anticipating Jesus' return does. And the last thing he mentions is you have continual praise. You have continual praise. Look at the last thing Peter says in verse 18. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him, that's Jesus, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you see that? It's now in the present and it continues all the way into eternity. Read the book of Revelation and it says, even in heaven, believers praise God. It's something that's to be going on now and it will in heaven. So let's keep doing it. That's what a person who is anticipating the Lord Jesus Christ's return does, continually praising Him. And that's how Peter closes this letter with a doxology, calling believers to worship and adore God. So my friend... You are to give God all the glory. You're to do it now. You will do it in eternity. You need to do it tomorrow. And you need to keep doing it the next week, the next year, until His return. Keep praising Him. Give Him the glory. Give Him the honor that's due. Are you? Would that, would that be something that is evidenced in your life? If not, maybe there's an issue of what you believe. Maybe you need to know some other things about God. Maybe you need to know that Jesus is returning. Peter says Jesus is returning. And in light of that, we need to live in anticipation of His return. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.